Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. State officials say that more than 100,000 service members from Georgia were deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan between 2001 and 2012. Nationally, about 20 percent of veterans coming back from these conflicts have been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injuries. Alchemy Sky Foundation is an Atlanta organization that helps people heal through music. They recently worked with veterans to create this. That song is called The Just Fire, and a group of Metro Atlanta veterans created it. Jay Budd is a musician and founder of Alchemy Sky. He helped with the music project and joins me in the studio. Jay, hello. Good morning, Virginia. Thanks for having us. Well, thanks for being here. Also here, Marcus McCreary, an Army veteran. He worked closely with other veterans in helping them write A Just Fire. Hello, Marcus. Hey, good morning, Virginia. Thank good you morning. Me. Thanks for being here, both of you. Yes. I'm curious, so Jay, why did you and Alchemy Sky decide to focus on veterans for this project? I think as we got involved with the veteran community, we realized that there was an opportunity to create some non-traditional programs so that military veterans could process their unique experiences in a way that might be a little more authentic and real to them every day. And I think music can do that. Yeah. Had you worked with veterans before? We have. We partner with the VA. Um, We also have a program at the Veterans Empowerment Organization which is a homeless shelter for veterans just on the west side of Atlanta. But this was different for us in terms of walking post-9-11 veterans through the process of writing and recording a song. Yeah, so you did it with people like Marcus. Marcus, how did you find your way to this? Uh, Me and Jay actually were both working with veterans programs, and uh, we were actually suggested through Wounded Warrior Project to meet up with each other. And then once we met, it was just like, let's do this. All right. (laughs) So this is, you call this project music therapy. Are you actually doing therapy with mental health professionals or making music as therapeutic practice? We were making music in this program um, and having a therapeutic outcome. Um, What we have been told is, if we turn down the idea of therapy and turn up the music, we can still get the same effect. And I think it makes veterans a little more comfortable uh, versus emphasizing the therapy. Had they worked with making music before this project, any of the veterans? Their, their experiences were, were varied. Some of them did, but some of them did not. So you, had they all been diagnosed with PTSD or other traumatic brain injuries or other disorders? Most of them were medically discharged from the service. So they had a variety of different um, challenges that they were working through. And I think the music was able to help them. So Marcus, you, the project started, 10 veterans offered about 15 weekly sessions. What did you yes. do in the sessions? Teach them how to write, produce music? Yes, we went through uh, the whole writing process, creating music, uh, you know, finding instruments and stuff. We most, mostly were working on the writing part so, the, so that they can speak on, you know, the experiences they had in their careers and lives. Yeah, in fact, we you speak to, there's a reel showing the process of this. It's just terrific. Mm-hmm. Here's one of the creators of Adjust Fire. His name is Jamal Joyner, served in the Air Force, and he's talking about it. Well, especially with this particular uh, song, it let me express myself, uh, you know, my experiences in the military, especially being deployed. I just fired, never getting tired, gotta keep it moving. Downrange, too long, time to bring it on home. Gotta call my wife, when I get off, I'm feeling all alone. So tired, sleepy, 
myself shake. It actually drew things out that I really didn't know I was feeling all the way. Because uh, the, the story, the, the song I wrote is really a story about how I felt when I was in Iraq. So Jamal was one of those. There's also, we hear from Keisha or Kesha Sharp, Antoine Williams, Milton King. So did you have everybody contribute their own little bit? To how did they collaborate? Yeah. Well, everyone had their own style. We had some country singers in there. We had gospel singers in there. Uh, so when we finally chose a song and was starting to trying to pull it together, we were such a unit that we just decided to do it in a hip hop style. Um, but of course, you know, everybody's like, man, next time we do this, we got to do a country song. And next time we do, we got to do some other type of songs. But I mean, it just became together because, you know, veterans, we naturally mesh together, whether it's my idea or your idea. It doesn't matter. It's one idea. And if I can help you on that, whether it's a country song or a hip hop song, I'm going to jump on it. Like our guy Milton, completely country guy. <laughs> but I'm talking about he, he let it all out. And he's one of the best, favorite, my favorite parts of the song, honestly. He said something beautiful, too. Yeah. He said something like, we're all tuned to the same frequency. Exactly. So yeah. what was it about being in a group of veterans together? Did, did it just feel like a safe place for them, you think? Yeah, it's more of having people that understand what you've been through. And when you talk about it, it's not getting a blank face back. It's getting a, a yeah, I know what you're talking about face back. You know, so once you get around each other and then you start talking about these experiences, uh, you know, some people, uh, especially out in the civilian world, you'll hear like, you need to toughen back up, you know, it's something we hear in the military, but there's certain times that that doesn't need to come out, you know, so when we're talking to each other, we know when to tell each other, nah, you need to toughen up, and then we know when like, yeah, bro, I feel you. How, gotta- did, how did you decide then on the name Adjust Fire? Well, it was kind of the concept of the of the whole program when I was speaking with Jay about it. And uh, when the song, when we was hearing the music and, and then that song kind of, who did it hit first? Was it? It was one of us that it hit first. And then Adjust Fire was just like, yeah, we can't focus on what's going on now and what life has going on. We need to adjust our fire. You know, that's a military term. So and once I said that, everybody's eyes just lit up mm. like, yes, that's what this is all about, adjusting fire and keeping it moving. That's a musician and Army veteran, Marcus McCreary. Also with us, Jay Budd, musician and founder of Alchemy Sky Foundation in Atlanta. They both worked with veterans on a project using music as a therapeutic process. Well, Jay, you you mentioned Wounded Warrior, and Mm -hmm. we know about the Veterans Writing Project, the Theater of War Project, performing ancient Greek tragedies about warriors. Let's dance. So, So what do these creative arts do that more traditional therapies don't? I think they present... Um, an authentic way for a veteran to process their experiences. So this, I think, is a great supplemental to their journey in terms of their their mental health treatments. Um, but to me, the music, when people, when we work with veterans using music, I feel like we're validating their voice and they're taking what they have learned or wh- what they're working on in their other traditional therapeutic methods and being able to interpret that in, in their own voice. So one of the, the deeply moving experiences for me is when someone, when a veteran writes something and you can feel, you can, you can sense the catharsis on their face and then when everybody starts to nod, um, there is this kind of feeling of unity like you're not alone. And I think that's what art can do. Um, finding ourselves in tricky places and then helping each other come out um, is something that I think art can can serve for all of us. Yeah, we had some tear jerkers. I can imagine. <laughs> and do you met you said you said you're going to do a country song next. Are you actually going to continue this project with other songs? We are. We're um we're in the fundraising mode right now, so we're going to have Veterans Music Project 2.0 in the fall and we're going to have two different genres. Um so we are 
raising money right now at alchemysky.org, and we're excited to get the, the next one off the ground. Nice. So, Marcus, you served in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Kuwait. Can you tell us a little bit about your transition back to civilian life? What was happening for you? Uh, it's, and it's actually uh, something that I noticed that a lot of us have in common. Um, the difference between the military and civilian life is very hard to explain, but you, you literally have to live it. And then people are like, yes, that, that's how I feel, too. So it's, it's, it's trying to adjust to not everyone having the same core values. That's mm-hmm. a big one. There's a... There's seven army values. There's, I mean, every branch of service has their own values, but everyone has values. And then when you come to the civilian world, it's a little bit different because everybody's trying to win at mm-hmm. the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So you have to watch yourself. And then also we have this big selflessness that the military um, puts into us so that we can help each other, you know, build when, you know, one another are down. So when we come out, you know, we kind of get in these trusting situations and people may take advantage of it and we're still going to give it our all because we're dedicated. You know, that's that's part of our values and, you know, selflessness. Uh, you know, I don't really need it, but I see that you really want it. So let me go ahead and let you have it. And we'll find ourselves giving and giving and giving. And a lot of the veterans that I, I was talking to, I noticed that, like, they were just running out. Like, they would love to do more. They would love to be more. Like, and they have people that's pressuring them to pay this or help them with that. Because, you know, we get once we get a check, we're a target. Yeah. You know, you're getting your, your veteran's dependency check or whatever. Uh, that once it comes in, you know, your family around you, your friends around you, people know you just got a check coming. So it's like we want a piece of it. And it's like, oh, man. If, but when I first got out, I was living with a bunch of veterans. Mm-hmm. And it was just like one collective pot. The bills were getting paid. The food was in the house. The gas was. But once you get out, it's like. Now I'm watching someone else have it, and then I don't, you know. And I, I noticed that was a lot. Uh, I've been through therapy. I've done. Uh, I've been in the hospital. I've, you know. So I've I've had to talk to a lot of veterans, um, and I almost become a counselor. And when I'm sitting in there, like we sit and we talk, and and I notice that it's the same thing. Like we really have we have so much love to give. Like it's just better to get around people who receive it and give it, you know. And that's the difference between veterans with veterans. Versus going to like a doctor right, or something like right. that. So this is that that love being, you understand how I love. You know, I, you know I'll give it all. Mm-hmm. Just show me a little, you know I'll give it all. And then having that reciprocated. And that's what the group was really like. I'm, I had some people in there rapping that had no business rapping. I mean, it was just one <laughs> harmonious group. Like we were just all being together. Let's do something together. It was great. It, it, and it comes across in the music. It's just a, a wonderful composition, what, wonderful production as well. But as you're talking about, you know, People get out of their bubble, and it's yeah. a lot more difficult. Yeah. And and I'm sure a lot of people don't know how to relate to them. You know, mm-hmm. if you know if you know that somebody's been in the military, yeah. and we know that according to the VA, 21 military servicemen and women commit suicide each day in this country. Yeah. It is just staggering. Yeah. So, in general, Jay, you know, you've worked with veterans before. What do you mm-hmm. think is working, and what is not, when it comes to treatment and just helping people integrate back into everyday life? I think it's important to Marcus's point that you start with a core group of veterans. So what we did at the Veterans Music Project is we we started with a core, but then the music has an opportunity to connect that group of veterans with the larger community. Mm -hmm. So I think this type of exercise, and and hopefully we'll be able to um, organize some performances, and hearing the veterans perform and sing, I think is an opportunity for people who haven't served to really kind of understand what they go through. And what's, what was really powerful about our project is that because the veterans kind kind of had a mission or an objective, I think it was easier for them to tell their story. Mm -hmm. 
because they were in a group. And you can take that song and it's now on Pandora and YouTube and Spotify and Apple Music. And we can, we can create a larger connection to the greater Atlanta community because of that song. Yeah, and I'm sure people beyond that as well. You did throw in a Just Fire release party. What were some of the reactions from the vets and their families? It was fantastic. Um, we have a, a board member, Alan Jones, who owns Hi-Fi Buys, and we had it there. And um, probably the most powerful moments there were when we played the song, and whether they brought their spouse or their significant other or their mom, to to have their voices come through these big speakers and then have whoever they brought look at them in a way that maybe they hadn't looked at them before uh, was just a fantastic moment. Oh, yeah. Okay, so we have just a minute left. I'm wondering, could this be a model for other groups working with vets? What do you think, Marcus? I really think it could be. Uh, one thing that's about music is it's way more natural. You know, when you're letting out these words, when you're thinking about what you're thinking about, you're just you're doing your own therapy. It's self-therapy at the end of the day. Um, like I said, we had a bunch of tearjerker moments. I've seen people coming to having, you know, they're coming to their own revelations as they're writing their music. I think it's a great program. Um, I know it's ser it served its purpose with me. Uh, a lot of the other veterans, they can't wait to get back to it. So, yeah, I think this is a, a, a good, good start on something um what do you call it? Uh, not tradition, non-traditional yeah. uh, type of medicine. And we're also going to build by bringing back, you know, the old guard, inviting new veterans so we can continue to keep this momentum going. That is musician and Army veteran Marcus McCreary and Jay Budd, a musician and founder of Alchemy Sky Foundation in Atlanta. The conversation doesn't have to stop here. On this Memorial Day weekend, we would love to hear from you. How can people help support that transition from active duty military to civilian life? How's your family dealing with it? And if you've served in the military, how are you doing? What do you most need? Let us know on GPB's On Second Thought Facebook group page, or you can tweet us at OST Talk on Twitter. I'm Virginia Prescott. This is On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Madam C.J. Walker died 100 years ago this month. In the early 20th century, she cemented her legacy by creating a hair salve designed for African-American women's hair. Her contributions to black beauty products are still felt in Georgia and across the country. GPB's Morning Edition host Leah Fleming spoke with Walker's great-granddaughter, Alelia Bundles. Alelia is also a black hair historian and a journalist. Black hair is a multi-billion dollar industry. There are several companies and influencers that are benefiting from black women's love of just the right cream, gel, and special shampoo to make natural hair, braids, weaves, relaxed styles extra fly. It's a thing for sure. There's history behind this. Long before the black girl magic of today, there was a woman named Madam C.J. Walker. She is credited with being the first woman to become a self-made millionaire in the early 1900s, and she did it by creating a line of hair care products. Today, in memory of the 100th anniversary of Walker's death, we are taking a moment to celebrate her legacy with her great-great-granddaughter, journalist and author Alelia Bundles, who wrote the book on Madam C.J. Walker. Good morning. Good morning. Delighted to be with you. So tell us about her early life. She was born on a plantation. She was. She was born in Delta, Louisiana uh, in December 1867 on the same plantation where her parents 
and older siblings had been enslaved, and she was the first child in her family born into freedom. Ah, okay. And then what inspired her to start this this black hair line? Well, her early life was really difficult. She was orphaned at seven, married at 14 to escape the treatment of a cruel brother-in-law. And then she was widowed with a child at 20, moved up the river from Louisiana to St. Louis, where she had three older brothers who had preceded her in moving. They were barbers. So she was exposed to the hair care industry, but really her own problems of losing hair because of hygiene issues that were very common during the early, late 19th century, early 20th century, she was really going bald from scalp infections. She experimented with products. She learned some things from her brother. She, for a period of time, sold products for a woman who would become her big competitor, Annie Malone, and then developed her own formula with a shampoo and an ointment that healed the scalp infections and that grew hair back. Oh, do you know what was in it? Yes, I mean I have the original formula, but you know it, it's really it's really very very sim- very simple. But at the time, it was revolutionary. Essentially, when people didn't have most Americans didn't have indoor plumbing, they couldn't wash their hair or bathe, and we don't want to think about that too much. But that was the deal. Mm-hmm. And as a result, she had very bad dandruff and infections. And the washing the hair, encouraging women to wash their hair more often, massaging the scalp, and then applying an ointment that contained sulfur that healed the scalp um, the scalp infections. And I will tell you, Bronner Brothers makes a very similar product there in Atlanta. So it's some people still use it, but it's a heavy ointment that's like a Vaseline, but that was revolutionary at the time. Today, as you mentioned, we have all kinds of creams and gels and mousses and other things that are not as heavy. But then that was a big, uh, a big breakthrough. Yeah, and sulfur is, like you're saying, it's still around and it still works. Exactly. It still works when you have that kind of, you know, level of infection. And it's really a centuries old remedy. You, it, it is mentioned in biblical times. It is mentioned in very early textbooks, but it wasn't commercially available when she started. And really, she because she was such a master marketer and salesperson and leader, that's how the infrastructure of her company developed that allowed her to become a millionaire. Yeah. So how did she do this? Because she wasn't uh, very, I mean, she wasn't educated, was she? No, 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 absolutely. She had very little formal education. You know, there were, uh, the state legislature in Louisiana was not trying to educate black children during her (laughs) childhood. So uh, because of all of the racial violence and the horrible things that were going on. So she did not have much formal education. But as she began to develop her business and begin to get exposed, she became self-educated. She actually even hired a tutor who became the manager, a woman who became the manager of her factory, and she just soaked up energy. She had been exposed to uh, the more middle-class women of her church at St. Paul AME Church in St. Louis, and that began to give her some aspirations to become educated. They began to show her a vision of herself as something other than an uneducated, illiterate washerwoman. So she was self-educated. She went to night school. She had a private tutor. But it was really sort of watching how women work together collectively. Those women of her church were part of what was called the, the Club Women's Movement. And the National Association of Colored Women that was headed by Booker T. Washington's wife met in her church 
during the World's Fair in St. Louis in 1904, and she could see the power of women organizing. And she took that model and used it later to create her own national organization of her agents. Yeah. What did you learn about her when she became a millionaire? What, I mean, what, what was the reaction from people in uh, the community? Yeah, people were so proud of her. You know, this is pre-internet, pre-computer, right. pre-radio, pre-television. And so word had to travel in through newspapers and through word of mouth. And when she would visit a town or a city to sell her products, to demonstrate her products or have a convention, people were so excited that a black woman really just one generation out of slavery had been able to become such a successful entrepreneur and further had been able to employ other African-American women and give them independent income so they didn't have to make, they didn't have to wash somebody else's clothes and clean somebody else's house and work in somebody else's field. They could be empowered to be economically independent for themselves and their families. Yeah, she didn't just take this money as a millionaire and, and, and just stay where she was, but she actually became a philanthropist as well. That, that's absolutely right. And that I love that about her, that we that when the story gets taken beyond, she created a hair care company, a successful hair care company, employed people. That is extremely important. Mm-hmm. But that she used her money and her influence to employ women, to give back to the community, both as a patron of the arts who supported black musicians and artists, as a political activist who contributed money to the NAACP's anti-lynching movement, which was kind of Black Lives Matter 1.0, much money to African-American schools and colleges. So she really wanted to set the stage. And, you know, it does make you think about what Robert Smith did at Morehouse uh, this month with giving back. And I think that kind of philanthropy for truly wealthy African-Americans is something that Madam Walker helped to set the stage for. Mm. So Netflix is set to premiere this series on her life, and it stars Oscar winner Octavia Spencer. Couldn't have picked a better woman, in my opinion. And Mm -hmm. it's produced by LeBron James, yes, the basketball Mm -hmm. star. And it's based on your biography that you did in 2001 called uh, On Her Own Ground, right? Right. So my book, On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker, was optioned for uh, a Netflix series. And, you know, it's very interesting. Hollywood doesn't really stick to the book. So I'm I'm glad that my book is was read by them and that they are learned something about it. But I think the story that they're telling is really going to be very, very fictional. So uh, um. and I and I hope it will give me an opportunity to have people read my book and look at some of the nonfiction, um, accurate stories that we're doing about about Madam Walker. But yes, it will expose a lot of people to uh, to Madam Walker's story. Okay, so this is, um, you know, I was wondering if you were actually an executive producer of this project or involved in it. Yeah, I'm a I'm a consulting producer, so I'm mm-hmm. you know reviewing scripts and you know so. But as I say, you know, it's Hollywood, and they really. Um, <laughs> have their own way of, t- of telling a story. So it's di- it's not a documentary for sure. Oh. And there are a lot of fictional characters who've been added and made up scenes and that kind of thing. So I, I, I don't know that it will tell exactly the story that I personally would have told or that I tell in the book, but it will expose people to Madam Walker's name. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Alelia Bundles, author of the book On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker. 
Let's talk about hair for a minute. And I want to get your thoughts on this. Um, Back in 2017, a black rapper by the name of French Montana uh, got his delicate ego injured by some criticism on social media by a black woman. And he immediately clapped back at her by attacking her hair, calling it nappy. And I'm wondering, what is it about black women's hair that causes uh, so much drama? You know, that is that the, the $64,000 <laughs> question. Our hair is so beautiful. And the culture, the society in which we live has European standards of beauty as the end all and be all. And so we constantly need to remind ourselves that what we have growing out of our hair, out of our heads, is something that is valuable. And our hair is very complicated because we, our hair is a mixture of all of the ethnicities and races that are mixed in our blood. So any, in any particular person may have three or four or five different textures going on. So it is, our hair requires moisture. So it is not always easy to manage it. Fortunately, there are now tons and tons of products that provide moisture that allow us to uh, style it in different ways. So I think it's really the tyranny of European standards of beauty imposed upon the beauty of black women, and we need to emerge and claim our beauty. And if we let other people define us and and define it as negative, then we need to be fighting back against that. Mm. And perhaps we need to really be financially benefiting off of all of these products that are created for our hair. Definitely. And, you know, there I have I am old enough to have watched this cycle. I grew up in a household with two parents who were executives of hair care companies. My mother was vice president of the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company because that was her family. My father became president of another black hair care company called Summit Laboratories. So our summer vacations were centered around going to hair shows. So I have watched this industry since the 1950s. And I've watched as companies like Summit Laboratories, Johnson Products, Bronner Brothers. And Bronner Brothers is still owned by the family. But other companies were bought by the big companies, L'Oreal, Alberta Culver, Revlon, and then um, subsumed. And that um, the power was taken away. And then it was disrupted again by chemical hair straighteners, then disrupted by the Afro, then disrupted by weaves and back and forth and back and forth in Korean ownership of, of the beauty supply stores. But it is very interesting as YouTube and the natural hair movement has reemerged, because this is not the first time, right. the number of um, women especially who are making their own hair products and using the internet. So I think we're seeing a new disruption with more black ownership again. And then when you look at someone like Richelieu Dennis, the CEO and founder of Sundial Brands with Shea Moisture, Nubian Heritage, and Madam C.J. Walker Beauty Culture, Rich founded that company with his grandmother's recipe from Liberia and Sierra Leone. He recently, as many people know, sold the company to Unilever. He's still CEO. It's still the company sort of went over just as many companies that Unilever do. But what he did, which is revolutionary, is to stay involved in the leadership of the company, but also to use some of those proceeds to buy Essence so that Essence would be black owned. Mm. And I want you to talk about this. Your great great grandmother's uh, mansion in New York has been turned into an incubator for black female entrepreneurs. 
Talk a little bit about that and what it really means even to you. You know, I, I tell you, Leah, it gives me chills when I think about this full circle moment in this hundredth year of her death. That Richelieu, who's from Liberia originally, knew about Madame Walker when he was growing up and when he came to college in the United States, wondered what had happened to her company, ended up buying the trademark to develop the products, and now, with his incredible success, sees the vision of inspiring other women. So I have visited the house off and on since the 1980s through various owners, and I am totally excited Mm -hmm. and thrilled that it now is going to be an incubator for black women. And when I walk into that house, Mm -hmm. it is magic. And when other people walk into that house, they feel the magic of this woman who came from the cotton fields of the South, who became a millionaire and who built her home in what was then the wealthiest community in America. Yeah. What are some of the the lessons do you think we can still take away from your great-great-grandmother's her story 100 years later? She would the first thing she'd say is you have to have a good product. You have to start out <laughs> with a great product and then you have to market it. If nobody knows about it, it doesn't really matter if it's a great product. And then she would say you must give back. At her convention in 1917, her first national convention of her sales agents, two years before Mary Kay was born, she gave prizes to the women who con- who uh, sold the most products, but she also gave prizes to the women who contributed the most to charity. And she said to them, I want you to show others that as Walker agents, you care not just about yourselves, but about others. Your first duty is to humanity. And at the end of the convention, the women sent a telegram to President Woodrow Wilson urging him to support legislation to make lynching a federal crime. Mm. So her lessons are have a great product, market it, and then use your power and your influence and your wealth to make your community better. Mm. That is really powerful. Yeah. Here in Atlanta, uh, some people might not know that we actually have a Madam C.J. Walker Museum. Um, talk a little bit about the history of that. Could we learn more about her by going there? Sure, absolutely. So Risa DeForest has done such a fabulous job of creating that space, both with the with words, radio station, with and with a salon that was open, I believe, in the 1940s originally by two women who had been graduates of one of the Walker Beauty Schools. And he knows his history. He really tries to educate the community. And I'm, I actually have never visited the, the um, museum. I've been talking to him ever since he was planning it mm-hmm. and have seen tons of pictures and videos. One day I'm going to get there. Uh, but I'm, I really my hat is off to him for the work that he is doing in the community and the people who have been exposed to Madam Walker's story as a result. That is Morning Edition host Leah Fleming speaking with Alelia Bundles, the great-granddaughter of Madam C.J. Walker. Coming up, the Royal Crunk Jazz Orchestra is rolling in deep at the Atlanta Jazz Festival. We'll get a preview after the break. This is On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Summer reading season is just around the corner, and we're adding some new titles to your list. Jocelyn Jackson is author of multiple works, including The Almost Sisters and The Opposite of Everyone. Here are her recommendations for our Southern reading list. That's our series of authors and readers sharing books that define and reflect the South. 
Sometimes I think we aren't aware of all the history around us every minute and just how deep the blood is soaked into this black, rich soil we live on. And so when I think about reading the South, I, I, I was thinking about like how different books that where history or the past is almost a character or it has a presence or they are actual historicals. Hello, I'm Jocelyn Jackson, and I'm here today to tell you a few of my favorite Southern reads. I would recommend You and I and Someone Else by Anna Schachner. It is, um, it's set uh, in the Low Country, and in this book, the way the past informs the present is very, very personal. It's very much a book about family. Genre-wise, I would call it, it's literary fiction, but it's that kind of accessible, super readable literary fiction. Um, oftentimes, it's called upmarket fiction. I think the writing is beautiful. It's about a young woman, Franny, who in order to craft her own story or change her own story, she um, she has to sort of retell the story of her parents. Um, I'm gonna read just a little piece of it because I think my favorite thing about this book is just the writing is so pretty. She sat and gazed at the restaurant and the ocean and the lights of Charleston dotted on the sea. The salt from the water and air settled heavily on her body like the coat she wished she had brought along. There would always be a part of my father she wouldn't understand, she decided. She had known that when she married, and she would accept that. She would allow him that. She could better picture herself, her life even, if she had to work at knowing him. But what frightened her was that her child— the one growing inside her, might be the same. He had no doubt that I would be a girl. My mother did. In fact, in perfect role reversal, my mother stared the nearly 50-50 probability straight in the eye and questioned the very suggestion of balanced odds. As she saw it, the fact that she had tricked my father into parenthood, having planned my conception without asking for his complicity, would tip the scales in his favor. I would be a boy, she was sure. He'll probably look like you too, she told my father. He'll get those long, wasted eyelashes. I love her matter-of-fact, blunt, bold tone. The writing is so accessible, but what she does thematically is so complicated and layered. It's really, it's really quite nice. The next one I want to recommend is definitely a different genre. It is science fiction. Um, and part of it's actually set in California. It's Kindred by Octavia Butler. I'm in two book clubs. I'm in my neighborhood book club, um, and I'm in a classics book club. And I, th I think that's kind of a neat thing to do, um, especially as a person who writes books for a living. I, I was looking for ways to be more engaged as a reader because sometimes... Like reading was always my first love and my greatest joy. And it's, I mean, I spent most of my childhood with my nose buried in a book. Being in these book clubs gives me 
this feeling of the kind of reading that's not part of my job. Like I read a lot for my job just to stay current on trends and what's happening and what all my friends are doing. Um, and sometimes if I forget, you know, what a magic experience it is. And these book clubs sort of ground me. They give me people to talk about stuff with. And we chose Kindred in the Classics Book Club. Um, it's the story of a young woman, modern. It was written in the 1970s, so take modern with a grain of salt. But she's a young African-American woman um, living in California. And she sort of gets stuck in time. And she gets pulled back to the antebellum south where she intersects with her own family of origin. Um, it's one of, it's probably Octavia Butler's best known work, but any Octavia Butler that exists, you should probably read it. She's amazing. This was my, um, my first book of hers I'd ever read, and now I'm sort of in the middle of reading everything she ever wrote because it's so great. I'm just going to read you the opening of this. I love her matter-of-fact a blunt, bold tone. The writing is so accessible, but what she does thematically is so complicated and layered. It's really, it's really quite nice. I lost an arm on my last trip home, my left arm. I lost about a year of my life and much of the comfort and security I had not valued until it was gone. When the police released Kevin, he came to the hospital and stayed with me so I would know I hadn't lost him, too. And, and the, the last trip home that she's talking about, what she means by home sort of unfolds over the course of the book. Um, I love it. It's a book I'm keeping on my shelf that I'll probably reread rather endlessly. The last book I want to suggest, it's not even a book so much. Well, it is a book. It's a specific book, but it's by um, author Tayari Jones. She is now local, I believe. She's uh, she's moving. She's either moved here or she's moving soon to take a position at Emory, and she's from Atlanta. And uh, her most famous book is definitely An American Marriage. It might even still be on the New York Times list right now. I am here to tell you not to stop there. I, I, I've been reading Tiari Jones since her first novel. And I think that's after you finish An American Marriage, or you've probably already read it, go back and read her other books, uh, especially this first one. It's called Leaving Atlanta. And it's set here at the time of the Atlanta child murders. And it's narrated by three kids who are in that sort of dangerous target age group. Um, it is a beautiful, heartbreaking, really character-driven, intimate portrait of what it was like for these kids growing up inside of this thing that was happening. But it also just gets very much into their lives and who they are as people. They're all very, very real. That was Jocelyn Jackson, author of The Almost Sisters. We used Red City Theme and City Limits by Blue Dot Sessions for music. If you have recommendations for our Southern reading list, let us know or on our Facebook group or at OSD Talk on Twitter. The Atlanta Jazz Festival gets underway this weekend. The annual event is one of the country's largest free jazz festivals. Among the featured is the Atlanta-based band, the Royal Crunk Jazz Orchestra. Trumpeter Russell Gunn leads the group and stopped by the studio to talk about the band's natural mashup of traditional jazz, rhythm and blues, and Southern hip hop.
Crunk Jazz Orchestra has grown from um, a smaller community-based ensemble to what it is today. Initially, what the Royal Crunk Jazz Orchestra started as was just a small group of musicians that I got together to perform some music that we initially dubbed Crunk Jazz. And we got that name from... I had a singer in the band, her name is Julie Dexter, and she was listening to some of the music in her car trying to figure out her parts and what she needed to sing. And she said a little kid came up to her car and said, oh man, that sounds like some crunk jazz right there. And that's how that name was born. And so so it's grown into what it is today. I don't feel a real responsibility for bridging the gap between various genres, you know, say jazz, hip hop. I've just always been a part of all of those communities and it's always been a part of what I do. So it's it's just always come naturally to me for that mashup to be what it is. When I was a, a high school student in East St. Louis where I'm from, our high school jazz ensemble basically did the same thing I do with Get It On Your Live. We covered all of the bases of black music. So it was natural for me to continue on that path. I have a rule when I'm um, writing music and um, when I'm trying to prepare music is that I don't listen to any music at all or I try not to. The music on Get It How You Live that's my original music is just that. It's just the culmination of, of the influences that I've had over the years. The reach back, like the things like the, the Switch medley and the Ballad of the Sad Young Man, those are, are songs or pieces that for some reason have have always been stuck in my head since my youth. We are lying here all for the first time you and I show me what you do for me. Switch met me in particular. I've always been a super fan of, of the group Switch. I was always in awe, even as a, as a kid when they were, you know, on top of the world as, as pop artists. I was in awe of the musicality of the band even before I even knew what the musicality of the band was. And those songs were big hits, but they always stuck out to me as being so musical. So, you know, in, in my head, they've always been there. And this was an opportunity for me to bring that to light. And, and 
And one of the original members of Switch actually heard that medley and he contacted me on Facebook and I couldn't believe it. And it was um, it was an amazing thing to do. He was very happy and he thought that it was very well done. So I was really proud of it. How you live is <laughs> you know it's always one of those things that's that's it's, it's hard to really dis to put into words like a, a sentiment and especially an african-american sentiment which is being an african-american is a mashup of so many things in itself and then the language being a mashup of so many different things and then the sentiment of the actual words being a mashup of so many things but i guess in layman's terms the the phrase get it how you live pretty much means is that you live your life honestly according to what's going on in your world in the in the cards you've been dealt and in dealing with that in an honest way and reflecting that honestly the thing about quote unquote jazz that people have to understand is that the improvisational language of jazz Yes, it remains constant, but the true nature of quote unquote jazz music is change. It always has to change. And what changes more often than not is the rhythmic concept. That's just the African basis of what we do. And so, of course, there are a lot of, I guess, quote unquote purists that um, that don't like the change, the, the rhythmic shift in what jazz musicians do. I, for one, love it. I was the one or one of the original ones that shifted it in the direction that it's in now. So what this generation of musicians are doing, I'm all for it. The only thing that I don't have a problem with, but the only thing that I would that I think gets lost with each generation of jazz musicians is the language that we use to improvise. And what I'm talking about is that language of Charlie Parker, uh, Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong. Each progressive year, that gets lost. And once that gets lost, then you don't have a base to work from. There's nothing to put over the rhythmic concept. And then, so that way, then, are you playing this funk? Or you just playing hip hop? You're not really playing a, a quote unquote jazz that has a, a funk rhythm. As in a mood where you say I'm blue, that yeah. means you're sad. Yeah. But then there's the blues as music. You may say, do 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 jazz festival itself it's been a blessing to me camille love has always shown um, super confidence and faith in me to put something together for her every year almost that i've been living in atlanta and to be if not the one of the world's largest free jazz festivals it's almost one of the <laughs> you could consider it a wonder of the world because it takes so much to put something like this on they have 30 days of, of free jazz in and around the city before the actual festival at the festival site. There's three or four stages 
at the at Piedmont Park area. There's always a late night performance on Saturday evening at Park Tavern. And Camille does, and I think, one of the greatest jobs of running a festival that you can do. Of course, you know, it takes a village, I guess. It really takes so many people to, to help her, and it, all, it takes a strong leader to put something like this on every year. Russell Gunn from Royal Crunk Jazz Orchestra. You can hear their music live Sunday at Piedmont Park. Details at our website, gpbnews.org. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, and the Raven Taylor. Jesse Nicewanger is our engineer. Our interns are Allison Krausman and Jake Troyer. Don Smith, our Dean of Grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. And Sarah Shariari is managing editor of GPB News. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. This is On Second Thought.